Welcome to another episode of Tactical Tuesday with Modern Milsim. Through this podcast, we will bring you real-world tactics, techniques, and procedures that will enable you to succeed on the Milsim battlefield. It's time to make ready. Hello, and welcome to Episode 5 of Tactical Tuesday with Modern Milsim. As always, I am your host, Craig White. Thank you for being here. Now, today we're going to talk about military force structure and organization. We will also discuss chain of command along with platoon, squad, and fire team member roles. So let's start with basic Milsim player roles. Depending on the Milsim event organizer rules you are using, players will sign up for one of several positions in their faction's force structure. The first player role we need to discuss is the Rifleman. While also being the most basic of Milsim player roles, the Rifleman is also the one that is most essential to Milsim operations. Most of the shooting and moving on the Milsim battlefield is done by Riflemen. The Rifleman is often the point man of a fire team or squad and as much the recon ahead of the unit. In addition to being the basic firepower of the squad or fire team, the Rifleman is also tasked with protecting specialists such as medics, support gunners, and command staff. Riflemen perform the more riskier movements, such as the initial crossing of danger areas, in order to keep specialists and command staff alive. Riflemen are also the battalion's observers on the ground. As the boots on the ground, riflemen look for evidence of enemy presence and or movement. Once the enemy is detected, the rifleman advises his fire team leader of that fact, and it gets passed up the chain of command. As such, the responsibilities of the rifleman are best illustrated by the phrase, shoot, move, and communicate. So now let's move on to the fire team leader. The fire team leader is the brain of the fire team. As such, the fire team leader directs the members of his team in a manner so as to accomplish the squad leader's orders. The fire team leader leads from the front. He adjusts the positions of his team members during combat to maximize their effectiveness and secures the terrain or objective for which he is responsible. Since the fire team leader is responsible for keeping his men combat ready, he requests lace reports from his fire team and works to address those needs. Typically, one of the fire team leaders will assume command of the squad if the squad leader goes down. Normally, members of the fire team report only to their fire team leader and do not report directly to the squad leader. Now, as we have discussed in previous episodes of this podcast, a squad is typically divided into two fire teams, Alpha and Bravo. Of the two fire team leaders, Alpha team leader is responsible for navigation, for moving his team first while conducting successive bounding overwatch, and directs the actions of his team while it reacts to combat. In contrast, Bravo team leader is typically responsible for accountability in the squad and directs Alpha team as it moves to flank the enemy as part of performing Battle Drill 1 Alpha. Now, I know we have not yet discussed assaulting objectives or Battle Drill 1 Alpha. That will likely be the subject of my next podcast episode, so look forward to that. So now where the fire team leader is the brain of the unit, the support gunner is its backbone. The support gunner operates the unit's highest casualty-producing weapon and is central to its firepower. The primary responsibility of a support gunner is to use his squad automatic weapon or light machine gun to provide sustained suppressive fire to fix or pin the enemy forces. This allows other fire team members to flank and eliminate the enemy. Now, examples of saws and LMGs used by support gunners include, but are not limited to, 
the M240, the M249, the M60, the M27 IAR, the HK MG4, the MG42, the Browning Automatic Rifle, the Stoner 63, the RPK, and the PKM. Although it is semantical in MILSIM operations, some U.S. Army publications refer to squad automatic weapon operators, such as those operating an M249 or similar saw, as automatic riflemen, and other lighter machine gun, such as those operating the M240, M240 Bravo, and M60, as machine gunners. For MILSIM purposes, automatic riflemen and machine gunners are effectively the same. In addition to providing sustained suppressive fire, the automatic rifleman also acts as the assistant leader for the fire team. Though not often utilized in MILSIM operations, the assistant gunner, or AG, is the leader of a SAW or LMG team. As the leader of that team, he directs the fire of the support gunner and points out targets for him. To do so, the assistant gunner, or AG, points out the targets by usually by the clock method, and then when he's ready for the support gunner to commence firing, he squeezes his shoulder. When it's time for the support gunner to cease fire, the AG simply holds his hand in front of the support gunner's eyes to indicate that he should do so. Now, in addition to leading the SALT or LMG team, the AG will also assist in reloading the weapons as needed. So now this brings us to the sniper and designated marksman roles. Snipers typically act as scouts either alone or as part of a sniper spotter team or are used to eliminate high-value targets from a concealed position and or at longer ranges. In contrast, the designated marksmen are often employed to provide accurate long-range fire in support of other ground forces. Other than the way they are employed, the main difference between a sniper and a designated marksman for Milsim purposes is that a sniper's primary weapon is some form of bolt-action rifle, whereas a designated marksman's primary weapon is a magazine-fed semi-automatic rifle. So now let's talk about the anti-tank slash grenadier. Sometimes also referred to as heavy weapon specialist, the anti-tank slash grenadier specializes in destroying armored fighting vehicles, also known as AFEs, as well as technicals, which we refer to as gun trucks, structures, and mass infantry through the use of rocket launchers, grenade launchers, and hand-thrown grenades. And the anti-tank grenadier is especially important when you're dealing with an event that has many vehicles in it. With most MILSIM event organizers, technicals or armored vehicles cannot be destroyed by small arms fire. And that's where the anti-tank grenadier comes into his own. Most vehicles cannot be destroyed by small arms fire and must be destroyed either through the use of some direct fire weapon that actually strikes the vehicle or a grenade that lands within 10 feet. So if you're in an environment where there is many enemy vehicles and you do not have an anti-tank specialist or grenadier as part of your defense, you're going to have a bad day. Although not technically a military classification, several MILSIM event organizers have established a submachine gun class in urbanized areas of operations. Submachine gunners are often utilized as the point man or breacher in a CQB entry team stack. This class is restricted to airsoft replicas that are based on real-world weapons that fire pistol ammunition. Examples of submachine guns, or SMGs, used by submachine gunners include, but are not limited to, the MP5, the MP7, the Mac 11 the UMP-45, the Uzi, the Thompson, and the MP40. Any airsoft replica that is based on a weapon that utilizes rifle ammunition is not an SMG. 
So now we come to another very important role in Milson operations, and that is the radio telephone operator. The radio telephone operator, or RTO for short, is responsible for maintaining radio communications under the supervision of the squad leader, platoon leader, or higher command staff. This allows the supervising leader to focus on other tasks, such as conducting the battle. The RTO is also responsible for keeping track of time for the supervising leader. He must also be familiar with various radio procedures and reports, including the SALT-slash-SALUTE reports, medevac requests, calls for fire, and close air support request. An RTO is typically located in close proximity to a supervising leader. So the next role that we have is the Ford Observer. Ford Observers are responsible for effectively directing indirect fires and close air support on enemy positions. These duties include locating indirect fire targets, adjusting fire as needed to ensure their effectiveness on the enemy, and reporting battle damage assessments to higher command. Ford Observers are also sometimes referred to as JFOs, FISTERs, or cult teams. The next role is the medic. Now, medics are critical in MILSIM operations. This is because you're guaranteed to incur casualties whenever you come against a competent enemy force. So medics are responsible for treating and reviving battlefield casualties either directly or by use of other battlefield mechanics such as a medevac or casavac. So if you decide to take on the medic role, you have to understand how important it really is. If you're a medic, you do not need to be running and gunning and trying to shoot people all the time. Your primary role is to get soldiers back in the fight. If you've got nine guys lying around and you're shooting, you're doing your job wrong. You need to go in there and medic your guys so that they can get back in the fight and increase your chances of prevailing during the firefight. Now, the specialist role is a one-off. The specialist role encompasses any role not previously described. Such roles are generally operation-specific, and the rules of engagement for each role should be well understood by the designated specialist. The specialist should be able to perform their specialty at a moment's request and not require time to switch over to a different set of equipment or tools to accomplish their mission. So then we're getting into uh, more of the leadership roles. So let's talk about the squad leader real quick. The squad leader is the leader of the squad. Squad leaders give orders to fire teams through their team leaders and rarely gives orders directly to the fire team members themselves. In addition to his direct command responsibilities, the squad leader is responsible for receiving orders from the higher command and disseminating them to his fire team leaders. He manages communication between command elements and other squads. The squad leader leads fire team leaders through most battle drills. He typically leads at or near the front where he can best observe his area of responsibility on the battlefield and to lead his troops. Now, the player roles we just discussed are the primary positions within a fire team or squad. As you scale up to platoon level, the leadership roles change in their breadth and complexity. So let's talk about platoon leaders. The platoon leader is in charge of the entire platoon and issues orders to squad leaders under his command. The platoon leader will rarely issue orders directly to fire team leaders or individual platoon members, other than squad leaders and his platoon sergeant. In that position, the platoon leader is responsible for conducting all battle drills and to take such other action as to accomplish its mission and for preservation of the squads under his command. He is also responsible for executing orders from higher command and using his own initiative to accomplish the company commander's intent. Toward that end, the platoon leader is also responsible for synchronizing his squad's fire and maneuver. The platoon leader is also responsible for keeping the company commander informed of events occurring on the ground. Unlike the squad or fire team leader, the platoon leader positions himself slightly behind the front line so he can observe his squad's actions and effectively direct saying. 
the platoon leader also acts as the primary contact between his squads and the company commander. So now we're down to the platoon sergeant. The platoon sergeant is the senior advisor to the platoon leader. In that role, the platoon sergeant is responsible for making sure squads comply with orders issued to them and to take command of the platoon if the platoon leader becomes incapacitated. He also ensures that the platoon is prepared for combat by conducting pre-combat checks and inspections, also known as PCCs and PCIs. Finally, the platoon sergeant is responsible for whatever additional duties the platoon leader assigns to him. So these are the majority of the roles that players will deal with when they're going to a Milsim event. Although there are higher command roles such as company commanders, company first sergeants, and battalion command staff, I'm going to address those topics at a future episode when we're talking about battalion leadership and operational planning. So now let's move on to our next topic, which is Milsim Force Structure. Now, Force Structure is the way that most Milsim factions organize various players and teams into larger groups where they can be effective on the Milsim battlefield. Because most Milsim events involve less than 1,200 players and are structured around implementation of small unit tactics, or sets for short, it is unlikely that you will be dealing directly with force structures larger than the battalion level. As we touched on in earlier episodes of Tactical Tuesday, a battalion is usually the highest echelon of the Milsim faction force structure. It is typically comprised of three to four companies with an additional three to five smaller units also attached. In addition to its own organic mortar units, a battery of field guns or howitzers may also be attached to the battalion, as well as several vehicles. Now, in most small unit Milsim engagements, the overall faction leader is the battalion commander. His command staff typically consists of a radio telephone operator, or RTO, and an executive officer, or XO. It may also include a command sergeant major, or CSM, and forward observers who direct fires and close air support. Other specialists or staff can be added, as dictated by the commander and the battalion's mission. Now, the next echelon down from the battalion is the company. A Milsim company is typically comprised of 80 to 200 individuals, depending on the size of the event, that are divided up into two to four platoons. A company is typically led by the company commander and his first sergeant. In addition, the company command staff can also include an RTO or other specialist, depending on how the company commander organizes the company in question. As you move down the Milsim force structure tree, the next unit echelon is the platoon. Typically, a platoon will consist of 16 to 40 individuals divided into two or more squads. If the platoon has one or more medium machine guns, such as the M240 Bravo, PKM, or the like, or any sort of anti-tank weapons, they will be organized into the platoon's heavy weapons squad. The platoon is typically led by the platoon leader. Most of the time, the platoon will be organized into at least three squads. Three squads are preferred because, upon enemy contact, one squad will set up a base of fire to fix the enemy, while the second squad moves into a position to flank it. The third squad protects the flank of the first squad on the opposite side from the second squad moving to flank the enemy. It acts as security to prevent the enemy from flanking the platoon on its weaker side. Now, when you move down to the squad level on the force structure tree, you're at the tip of the battalion spear. Typically, a squad will be composed of two fire teams of four men each, plus the squad leader himself. That being said, it is not uncommon for squads to be augmented with a heavy weapons team that can increase its size to between 10 and 12 packs. 
The reason squads are typically composed of two fire teams is that they work together to fix and flank an enemy position. One fire team acts as a base of fire to keep the enemy pinned down and to degrade its situational awareness. The other moves to a more advantageous position to flank the enemy and destroy it. Now, a fire team typically consists of a fire team leader, a saw gunner, a grenadier, and a rifleman. Typically, the rifleman acts as the point man for the fire team, while the saw gunner is its backbone. The fire team leader is often positioned near the saw gunner so that he can better employ the fire team's highest casualty-producing weapon. Now, at the squad level, not only do you have Alpha and Bravo fire teams, but you also add the squad leader and whatever additional specialists have been attached to the squad, such as forward observers and AT weapon operators, etc. Now, typically, specialty units are often organized into platoon or company-sized elements called task forces. For example, an airborne-capable unit may be referred to as Task Force Danger or Task Force Knight. So to recap, a military faction is typically organized from top to bottom as the battalion, the company, the platoon, the squad, and the fire team. So now it's time to talk about the final issue for this episode, and that is chain of command. Now, a faction's force structure leadership is organized and controlled through its chain of command. The main purpose of the chain of command is to assist commanders at all echelon levels to achieve primary responsibility of accomplishing the unit's mission. Now, the U.S. Department of Defense defines chain of command as the succession of commanding officers from superior to a subordinate through which command is exercised. This is also referred to as the command channel. This definition means that each player is under the command of one individual leader. Similarly, each subordinate leader reports to and takes orders from one superior leader that is higher in the chain of command. In this way, each leader links the different levels of command. Now, the definition that I prefer for Milson operations is this one. The chain of command is the line of authority and responsibility along which orders are passed within a military unit and between different units. The reason I prefer this definition of chain of command is because actual individual rank has little impact in MILSIM operations. The chain of command in MILSIM operations is typically made up of players that volunteer to take on the command in an effort to provide structure to their faction and to provide direction and leadership to the players. Unlike in the real military, the authority to lead at MILSIM ops is not based on the rank of the leader. Instead, it is based on the willingness of the players under each leader's command to accept his leadership. It is an agreement by those being led to accept the leadership of those in the chain of command above them. Think of it this way. Leaders in MILSIM operations are provided with tactical control over the operation instead of command based on military rank. Those in command of higher echelons in the force structure are considered to be of a higher command authority than those in command of lower echelon elements. For example, the battalion commander is typically the highest command authority at a MILSIM event. He is in overall command of the entire faction. All orders and tasking are issued by the battalion commander and or his XO and passed down to the company commanders. Now, there are three characteristics that make up the chain of command concept. They are, number one, two-way communication. Superior and subordinate leaders must be able to communicate with each other. Number two, responsibilities are clearly defined for both superior and subordinate leaders. Number three, each individual knows who they are responsible to and for whom they are responsible. For the chain of command to work, each leader in the chain must be able to communicate with each other to give or take orders, depending on where they are in the chain of command, or alternatively, to give or receive critical information or reports. Each leader must also have a clear understanding of his responsibilities and to whom they are owed. Now, in a centralized command structure, the faction commander issues very detailed orders that not only state his intent, 
but also the manner in which he wants his orders executed. In contrast, a commander that utilizes decentralized command structure typically issues orders indicating what task he wants done, but without providing details on how to do them. He provides what he needs to be done without directing how to do them. Instead, the faction commander relies on his subordinate leaders to decide the best way to accomplish the mission assigned to them based on their superior commander's stated intent. We will be digging into the pros and cons of both centralized and decentralized types of command in future episodes of this podcast. So the highest command authority is the faction commander and his XO as the battalion command. As such, they are higher in the chain of command than company level leaders. As battalion command, the faction commander and his XO will originate or issue orders to companies and other units attached to the battalion. The company commander and his command staff receive the battalion commander's order analyze it, and decide on what course of action to accomplish the mission assigned to them based on the battalion commander's stated intent. In turn, the company commander issues his own orders to their subordinate platoon leaders that inform them of their tasking to accomplish the battalion leader's order. Orders would then flow down from the platoon leader to the squad leader and from the squad leader to the fire team leaders. So this is how orders are given down the chain of command through the various echelons of the force structure. Keep in mind that orders in the chain of command move from upper echelons down to lower echelons of the force structure. However, it does not move across and between units at the same echelon. Although company commanders are higher up in the chain of command than their platoon leaders, they are on equal footing with commanders of sister units of the same force echelon. For example, Able Company Commander does not have authority to give orders to Baker Company Commander or vice versa. That being said, the commanders of adjacent companies will often coordinate their actions to support each other. Similarly, the commander of Baker Company does not typically have authority to give orders to Easy Company platoon leaders unless Easy Company commander is down and only for so long as it takes Easy Company leadership to reconstitute itself. So this brings us to the related subject of succession of command. When we talk about succession of command, we are talking about a list of leaders that replace the unit commander if he goes down. For example, Able Company's succession of command would typically be the Able Company commander followed by his XO, if his XO goes down, they would be passed on to the first platoon leader. And if he cannot continue to command the company, then it would go on to the second platoon leader. So getting back to the chain of command, it has two functions. The first function, which we've already talked about, is for leaders higher up in the chain of command to give orders or tasking to leaders of lower echelon units under their command. The second function is for units that are lower down in the chain of command to pass information and critical reports up the chain of command to their superior commanders. This provides leaders up the chain of command with information necessary to make timely and informed decisions that will drive the faction to victory. So why is the chain of command important in MILSIM operations? Well, structure and rules enhance the functioning of a faction, especially one that is battalion-sized or larger. Orders are passed down the chain of command for the leaders of higher echelon units to the leaders of lower echelon units until those orders are received by those who implement those orders. Similarly, requests move up the chain of command until they reach the individual who has the authority to make decisions regarding a particular type of request. An individual's placement in the hierarchy determines his or her level of authority. So from top to bottom, here is the hierarchy of Milsim Faction's chain of command. At the bottom, we have the fire team member. Next is the fire team leader, followed by the squad leader. The platoon leader is the next one in the hierarchy. Then we have the company-level commander. And at the top of the chain of command is the battalion commander, who also happens to be the faction commander. One of the values of the military is respect for authority and this hierarchical structure. 
Those higher up the chain of command have often earned that position and deserve some measure of respect. However, leaders at MilSim Ops are largely in a position of authority by designation by the event organizer, combined with the consent of the troops led by that individual. Within this hierarchy of authority, the faction player base expects those with authority to take charge and make decisions with confidence. Many players value the directness and simplicity that is often associated with the way orders are given. In addition, players tend to tolerate changes in plans or standards if the leader is direct and takes responsibility for the change. Given the straightforward, direct style of many good Milsim leaders, players may have difficulty with or be frustrated with patronizing talk, uncertain leadership style, or hesitation. In order for friendly players to prevail during a Milsim operation, all players need to follow the chain of command. Based on your position in the chain of command, you will only be provided with the information needed to complete your objectives or mission. This is to preserve the operational security or OPSEC regarding the ultimate battle plan of the overall force commander. Diverting from orders handed down through the chain of command will likely severely impact the ability of your team or faction to achieve victory. Remember, due to OPSEC, you probably do not have the entire strategic picture. Nevertheless, you must follow the orders provided to you. So the bottom line is that the effective chain of command is essential to the effectiveness of a faction on the battlefield. It promotes communication amongst leaders, including transmission of orders down the chain of command and sit rep and salute reports up it. This effective transmission of critical information enhances the situational awareness of the force as a whole and increases the chance of victory. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I look forward to seeing you next week when we talk about reacting to contact and assaulting objectives with a focus on Battle Drill 1 Alpha. See you then. To our listeners out there, thank you for tuning in and I look forward to providing you with new episodes every two weeks. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please subscribe and provide us with a review. We want to know what you like and how we can improve. You can also contact us on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash modern with any suggestions you may have. In our next episode of Tactical Tuesday, we will discuss reacting to contact and assaulting objectives, including Battle Drill 1 Alpha and related issues. If you want to know more about application of real-world tactics, techniques and procedures to MilSim, please check out From Alpha to Omega, a MilSim tactical primer and training manual, as well as From Insertion to Extraction, Advanced MilSim CQB Tactics, Techniques, and Procedures. Both books are available at Amazon.com. As always, thank you for your support, and I'll see you at our next installment of Tactical Tuesday.